0: This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are, in general, to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back to our series on American history. This will be podcast number 35. In podcast number 34, in our first half of American history series, we were still talking about the impact of the transportation revolution and how it dovetailed with the industrial revolution. As we're moving along with the transportation and industrial revolutions, we looked back in podcast number 34, city development in the zone of transit theory. We looked at the pre-revolutionary households throughout the world, much less in the United States, and looked at the impact of the American system of manufacturing in establishing the worldwide precedent in the role of technology. In this podcast, number 35, we're going to be looking at the downsides of this revolutionary era. The Industrial Revolution clearly is still with us. However, how many other revolutions have been kicked off or spawned from that? Look at the 20th century alone and how many ages have developed that still is an integral part of American society, much less world society. Think about it. In the eons before the Industrial Revolution, the humans humans would travel through time, spending thousands of years between ages, the Iron Age, the Copper Age, the Bronze Age, I mean, thousands of years for these ages, in the way humans applied this newly found element in order to try to improve their lives. Look at the 20th century alone, and look at how many ages we have witnessed to the point that we are encountering an age every less roughly than 20, every 20 years or less. And you might say, well, wait a minute, Chris, looking back, it, aren't we kind of just, uh, you know, maybe being impacted by these things we now we call an age, but hundreds from years from now, will we call it an age? Well, an age, historically speaking means that whatever made that age iconic is if we take that element out of it, it would negatively impact humans who were living at that time that were reliant on that technology. So again, in the Industrial Revolution, we just looked at its origins in podcast numbers 33, 34, and we'll continue here with 35. But what we mean by age as well, heading into the 20th century, is we're going to get to the age of the automobile, the nuclear age, the age of mechanized warfare, the computer age, the age of the internet. And if you think about it, say, yeah, why don't we call them ages because it's so recent we call it an age? No. Look how negatively you alone, depending upon where you're listening from, in first world developed countries, Consider how negative your life would suddenly turn, turn, spin negatively in a downward spiral if I told you that between listening to this podcast and when I record the next podcast and post it for you to listen to, your homework assignment, ironically enough, one that I also give my students to do, yet in 20 plus years of teaching at the college level, no student has ever actually completed that assignment who would want to, but the assignment being between now and when we meet again, I want you to not use one electron's worth of electricity. Don't use any electricity. And how will you fare even in the next hour, much less the next time we meet? Or, fine, have your plugged electricity. Go ahead and plug in. But you cannot use anything that's using mechanized power to turn a set of wheels. So the transportation revolution, sorry, doesn't apply to you. Or you can't bear without that. Then how about I say, don't do anything until you tune into the next podcast that has to do with the computer. No age of telecommunications, which means your cell phone, go ahead and toss that puppy because that's useless to you. How many people's lives would truly be negatively affected. I'm talking about to the possibility of putting them into bankruptcy if their automobile were taken from them, their computer, their cell phone, internet access. This is what defines an age. All of those ages are spawned or the daughters of this Industrial Revolution. So let's look in this podcast number 35. Let's look at the downside of the Industrial Revolution. Again, as I told you in the very first podcast in my World History Series or American History Series, that for every plus, there is a minus. And whether you choose to agree with it, whether you choose to recognize it or not, I will always give you both sides of the coin for every concept and every person we discuss in these podcast series. First off, needless to say, if I were to ask you to pause it here, And tell me off the top of your head, what would be a negative downside of the industrial age? Just think about it a moment. And of course, what would come up to you? What would be the first thing on your mind? Most likely as you look all around you, unfortunately, would be the negative impact on the environment. In the initial years of the industrial age, the environment to the entrepreneurs that were getting their hands dirty in the industrial age, to them, The environment was a resource to be used and or discarded at a moment's notice. Dyes and chemicals would pollute the land and the water. Water levels and qualities where the changes in them would affect wildlife and even affect us. If you don't believe me just how bad water was taken advantage of and exploited for its properties, just look up the Cuyahoga River fires. Yeah, that's plural, fires, that took place in the middle part and latter half of the 20th century. Literally, ladies and gentlemen, who would have believed prior to the industrial age that somebody could take a match, drop it on water, and have it ignite? Yet that's exactly what happened in the infamous Cuyahoga River fires there was so much oil and sludge floating on the top of the water that literally it was flammable by itself and the water literally slash fire was impossible to put out initially again for those living in the akron cleveland corridor or familiar with ohio history you're most likely thinking of that famous fire or infamous fire of 1969 However, there were fires well before that as well. They were just smaller and not covered uh, as well by the press. But look at the way we would pollute the air and the way that would negatively affect not only human lungs, but the ability for wildlife to breathe, as well as, of course, with the entire plant kingdom. The impact on daily life would also be changed significantly. Where one worked went from the home based factory now to the factory itself. Family that once used to do practically everything together from sunup to sundown would now be a separated family. And again, by itself, that's not necessarily a negative thing. But what's happening is that America is recognizing what the transition into what becomes known as a wage-based economy. They are leaving their home factory units to go to a place of employment where they will receive a fixed set of dollars at the end of every shift, every week, or every two weeks. There would, However, there would also on the plus side, there would be the increase in leisure time. Think about it. For those who work from home, you're probably smiling or you're cursing me out right now because you know where I'm going with this. When we work from home, It's so much easier to forget when to start work or when to end work. When we are forced to leave the office or the store because it's closing, whatever work's not done, for the most part, that has to stay until the next day. But when we're working out of our home office, 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock can get awfully vague, awfully gray, become very hazy. Just a few more minutes, then I'll get dinner just a few more minutes, and then I'll help Junior with his or her homework. Because again, your transition, your commute time is literally milliseconds and just a couple of feet away. So as a result, we tend to get more absorbed with work. When one leaves the household to go to work, that's where America begins to witness an increase in something we call leisure time, This would also begin the massive migration from the rural areas of the United States to the cities, a one-way transition that largely would not even begin to slow until the latter half of the 20th century. So again, just some of the negative impacts, as I say, as we move from the looking at how the Industrial Revolution was going to be placing an inordinate amount of pollutants, pollutants on Mother Earth. And the way, again, we would eventually have to deal with things like water pollution, air pollution, even something that isn't recognized until the latter half of the 20th century, something called light pollution, where literally cities becoming so bright That it's almost as though the sun never sets over our urban areas and we have now been able to determine medically that this can have a negative effect on people who then live in the cities so from there we also then look at why industrialization doesn't seem to be consistent in any one country's topography why do industrial areas sprout up here Versus there, within one country's boundaries, or even one state, one county, or one township. The reason being is because the industrialists and the entrepreneurs that are coming of age, they quickly recognize that for industrialization to be successful, five criteria need to be met before the industrialists will decide to drop anchor and set up shop. The first of these is a constant supply of labor. There has to be a nearby significant number of people, a large population that can work the hourly shifts. So that first off needs to be recognized as the number one is the constant supply of labor. Secondly, would be a constant supply of renewable resources yes for negative reasons for exploitation we know that we know the negative effects that has now that was not necessarily recognized as the industrial age began but they wanted a working moving body of water preferably a river because of a constant flow by and large in one direction and by by the way when the direction doesn't work don't worry. In the industrial age, we will literally make rivers flow in the exact opposite direction. Don't believe me? Look up the flow of the Chicago River. When humans settled there, the Chicago River went in the opposite direction. Then we flipped it in the industrial age. That's the bounds that industrialism industrialization will leap to. The sky practically is the limit. So they want to see those rivers for purposes of bringing raw materials in as cheaply as possible, shipping raw materials out. They want that river to dump the dyes and all of the chemicals, which of course is going to be polluting our waterways. Occasionally I'm asked by a student, but wait a minute, everything even in the industrial age comes from the planet. So if it was here on planet Earth, why is it a problem now? Because humans are tinkering with it. That's the answer right in the question, because humans are tinkering with it. Mother Nature has produced a plethora of various elements. However, she did not intend them to be combined in ways that humans have figured out benefits us, but has it pays a negative price on the environment. And that's the answer to that very good question. So for one, number one, the industrialists need a constant supply of labor. They need a constant supply of renewable resources. They also need, which sometimes surprises my students when we're covering this in class, is they need political, economic, and social stability. They need all three. They want an area where there is largely some political consistency, economical predictability, and social stability. Four, they want a population that is mobile which leads to the fifth criteria. Industrialists want to see an adequate transportation network or at least one that is in the making. It's for those reasons, those five reasons, is why industrialization isn't applied equally throughout the land in any one country. Moving on then, what we begin to see is industrialization once, as I read, In Juan Enriquez's book, As the Future Catches You, once industrialism kicks in and a machine can now replicate what the human hands once did, the sky also becomes the limit, or lack of a limit, on the amount of money that any one industrialist can earn. That said, what industrialism in America does is it produces or reinforces what we call the class system in society. When I get to this segment in my lecture outlines, I'll throw this or stop the projector at this point, and I turn it back to the class and ask, raise your hand if you believe America has a class system. It's amazing, listeners, the amount of students that will not raise their hand because they don't believe it exists. Even when you hear terms like the upper class, the middle class, the lower class, doesn't matter. I will get a handful of students that will not raise their hand. They don't believe it exists. They think it's a play on words. However, the point of my lesson then, in any more than my podcast here, is not to drive home the point of whether it exists or not. However, in America, clearly we know that some people live a heck of a lot more luxurious life than other people in society. Which then leads us to ask the question, what really leads to the development of a class system? How do we determine who's in the upper, upper class, middle, or lower, lower class in Amer- the American strata of classes and society? By and large, we, historians and sociologists and political scientists by and large agree that there's six categories that largely place individuals in one category or one class level versus another. And I'm listing these, as was covered in a survey in Time magazine not long ago, when they looked at the six factors in the development or the determination of a class system here in America. I would encourage you, if you're listening while you're running on a treadmill or on a bike, to write these six factors down. It's not that I want you to write them down to reinforce it, that that it's number one, that it's accurate, or that you agree with it, or even that I agree with it. I don't necessarily, and neither might you. But I'm asking you to write those six categories down, because after this, I'm going to give you the opportunity to participate in an activity or an exercise which you are liable to not want to do because of how uncomfortable you'll be doing it. And I respect that. When I do this activity in class, I have yet to ever have a student abstain from doing it, but I had students come up to me and say, that was pretty tough to go through. And I admit it, because it really does call it as it is. That said, here are the six factors, again, that Time Magazine came up with or developed. Number one is occupation. Somebody's job, upon hearing that somebody is a so-and-so, for their line of work, sometimes Americans can automatically conclude they must be in the upper, upper class, upper, lower, lower, upper class, or what have you. So, number one, occupation. Two, which dovetails with this, salary and income. Three, the possessions that they have. Four, what they do in their leisure time. Do they have any leisure time? How much? And what do they do with it? Five, their education level. Six, and yes, this is difficult to admit, and again, if you don't have to admit it, but clearly race slash ethnic background also impacts individuals' conclusions of where so-and-so is within America's class system. So rattling those six off again very quickly, one, occupation, two, salary and income, three, possessions four leisure time five education and six race slash ethnic background quickly to surmise this what i'm getting at is if i introduce you to so and so who is an entrepreneur that last year cleared no less than 30 million dollars that has a private yacht that has far more leisure time than time they have to be at work. And in that leisure time, they take their own private flying lessons and they play polo and they have a PhD in whatever field. And yes, their ethnicity is what you might be concluding it is. All of those factors clearly puts the one that person A to one side of the class spectrum versus somebody else who I introduce you to that is an hourly worker that is barely making ends meet, that owns practically nothing, that has no idea what leisure time is and never made it out of a grammar school education. And yes, the S ethnic or race background is what you think it is. You cannot tell me that those two people, person A and person B, the entrepreneur and the hourly worker are ever going to be rubbing elbows in the same social circles, will ever be doing the same leisure activities. Now, using those six criteria, how would you break down the following class levels in America based on numbers? And I'm gonna rattle off the levels and that's where you may wanna pause the podcast to see where your numbers fit in with where Time Magazine concluded. The first of the six categories is your upper upper class, your lower upper class, your upper middle class, lower middle class, upper lower class, and lower lower class. So you can see the pattern there. Number one again, upper upper, lower upper, upper middle, lower-middle, upper-lower, lower-lower. As a means of the bookends, upper-upper class, had it not been for the age of the Internet, the people in the upper-upper class make so much unbelievable money and or have access to old money that had it not been for the Internet, they might not have been able to physically spend all the money that they have possession of within their lifetime the lower lower class doesn't even try to make ends meet because that just hasn't happened perhaps in all of their adult life and maybe even their childhood when being raised by a single or if they're lucky to set a set of parents with a mom and a dad. So where would you put those numbers now to make it somewhat easy on you? And you might say, yeah, right. My recommendation is to put a range because that's what Time Magazine did. It's not necessarily a hard, fast, single number. You might want to put a slight range between upper, upper and lower, lower. So if you want to pause the podcast here. Again, this is strictly American society. I know I have a lot of international listeners. Again, I more than appreciate your tuning in, uh, but this does not apply to your country. This is only an American society. What numbers would you put next to each category? Go ahead and pause it here. All right. Tune back in, or you chose not to participate in the activity, and I get that. Here is where the numbers fall. In terms of the six class levels in society, in the upper upper, if you put a number any higher than one, you were wrong. Only 1% of American society technically lives in that upper upper crust of American society. For lower upper, what were your numbers? Was it anywhere close to the one to 2% that actually it is? For upper middle, now we're getting into some larger numbers, but not as large as you might think. Upper middle class in American society is 9 to 10% of the population. Lower middle is 28 to 36% of the population. Upper lower is 33 to 35% of the population. And the lower lower is 17 to 25% of the population. You might say, wait a minute, Chris, that doesn't add up to 100. It's a little less than 100 or a little more than 100. Exactly. It depends upon those six criteria that I outlined above or before that you would factor in. Some of my listeners might put more weight on possessions versus education. Whereas another listener might do the exact opposite. But that's the number breakdown. And if you wish to confirm where those numbers were and how those numbers were derived, that was from an uh, article on the economy from Time Magazine, January 9th, 2012 issue on page 14. With this, now we move to bring the American. Application of the Industrial Revolution to a close by looking at the landed wealth within the United States in the now new industrial age. The gap between the rich and the poor was going to widen significantly. Unlike before, liquid wealth will now begin to be able to be passed on from generation to generation. By 1840, the term millionaire would be used for the first time as it enters the English language. Within the developing middle class, there would be a rising need for clerical workers. The number of factory laborers would skyrocket. As we discussed earlier, homes would change from the many workshops to homes that are primarily now for living functions only. And with more competitors popping up, entrepreneurs would have to think outside of the box in order to lure their customers in and to get the money out of their pockets. So between now and our next podcast, the next time you go in to a shopping mall, or if you have the opportunity between now and the next podcast, I ask you to go into a grocery store, any grocery store, look around, and I ask you to think about, is the layout of that store really the way it's supposed to be? by accident or is the layout of that supermarket exactly the way it needs to be according to the marketing experts for those entrepreneurs to be able to get you to reach deeper into your pockets and pour more and more, pull more and more money out of them. That's what we'll begin in the next podcast as we bring the industrial revolution in America to a close. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have, especially book recommendations. And if you like what was discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.